Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby, and today I'm joined by Dr. Zainet Pamuk. Dr. Pamuk is an assistant professor at the University of California, San Diego. She studies the intersection of political theory and the philosophy of science, with a particular focus on how science and expertise interact with democracy. And when I say interact, I don't just mean how science is used to make policy, but also about how the political realm shapes and influences science through public democratic engagement and through funding decisions. And she wrote a book about it called Politics and Expertise, How to Use Science in a Democratic Society. So, Zainep, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm sure it will be a pleasure because clearly your work overlaps all over the place with the themes we explore on this podcast. But there is one particularly intriguing idea you set out in the book I just mentioned, which I'd like to focus on today. And that's your proposal for uh, what you call a science court. So perhaps you could start by explaining a bit about that. Absolutely. So the science court is a policy institution, so it's not a legal court whose intention is to examine a scientific disagreement on an issue with a policy implication. So a policy question with a scientific component where there's disagreement and uncertainty over the science. It's a very common issue, and the, the court is, is designed to have scientists from two different um, positions who represent um, different views on the topic make their case in an adversarial structure. And there is a citizen jury, a randomly selected jury of ordinary citizens who listen to the the scientists make their case. And then they deliberate amongst themselves about uh, both the the policy implications, their values, their priorities, and the science, its uncertainty, how reliable it is to, to support certain policy interventions. And then they deliver a decision on the policy question posed to the court. Well, immediately lots of questions spring to mind. But just to be clear, uh, before I start firing those questions at you, this doesn't exist yet, right? This is something you're proposing, not something that exists in the world. No, it does not exist. All right. And its purpose is to settle, so if I understand correctly, not questions internal to science, but questions about how science should influence policy. That's exactly right. And um, it, it really should be emphasized. I'm glad you brought that out. The scientific dispute would obviously continue. It would require further evidence. Uh, A scientific disagreement wouldn't be resolved in this manner. So science has its own uh, procedures for settling disagreement um, and dealing with uncertainty. And none of it is in the the manner described here. But for politics, when we need a decision, when a certain policy has to be made, um, ultimately, we just have to weigh the the arguments and the evidence for different sides and um, think of the stakes, the values involved, the different interests uh, involved and make a decision. And this is precisely to allow that decision to be made informed by the science. Okay. Now, I feel slightly embarrassed to uh, to ask this next question. And in fact, I've already asked you when we weren't recording, but I, I'll repeat it now for the benefit of the audience so they can hear your answer. Um, I think this, this science court idea is intriguing, and I think it actually has plenty to recommend it. But uh, what I felt I had to ask you was, Like, how serious are you about this? Because I wasn't entirely sure to start with whether you intended this as like a provocative thought experiment or some kind of illustration of what we might end up with if we took some of your ideas about democracy and science to the logical conclusion, or whether you really meant this as like a genuine institutional proposal that countries might want to consider doing this. So I'll ask you again now, do you really mean it? I do mean it. 
Um, but I also wouldn't make the claim that we should immediately implement this on a large scale, that I am confident that this would solve the problems that I hypothesize or argue that it might solve. And I think we would start small and see what effect it has if it works. Um, so I would certainly be up for uh, teaming up with someone who's interested in these kinds of participatory experiments and give it a try. Um, but I also, without empirical evidence and you know, knowing how it plays out in the real world, uh, I also wouldn't uh, say we should, you know, that this should be our, our one dominant approach. It's an idea. It does have the purpose in the book of illustrating some arguments I make about the role of organized disagreement and public participation in dealing with scientific controversies in the public sphere. So it certainly has that illustration role, um, but I mean it as a serious, a serious proposal too. Um, and we can think more. I would certainly welcome more thoughts about what kinds of scientific policy questions it would be best suited for. Um, I have some ideas about, you know, whether it's better for settled controversies or um, new issues, whether it would work well at the national scale or the local scale. So these are the details that can be hashed out and, and should be hashed out before we give it a try. But yeah, I do mean it. Okay, good to know. And then with that out of the way, let's then start to explore some of those ideas you mentioned you have about the kinds of problems that this science court could address. So the main issue is about the difficulty of dealing with complicated scientific disagreements and scientific uncertainty, which are almost always um, how science arrives at the political decision-making stage in a, a non-pathological, kind of um, reasonable way uh, in the public sphere. So organizing scientific disagreement in a way um, that allows us to make decisions but in an informed way, but also in a way that protects the interests that we want to protect. So the difficulty here is that the normal processes of dealing with disagreement, with political disagreement, are not that well equipped with dealing with technical issues because um, the kinds of accountability processes that, for example, presume that transparency will be enough, that citizens can hold their decision makers accountable in, in cases of political controversy, um, are difficult to apply in cases where um, transparency does not get over the, the problem of complexity, of the technicality of science, or, or the disagreement between scientists just does not facilitate accountability. Um, and accountability is, is one of the key purposes of this institution. It's meant to, to make science more accessible. It's meant to bring in the public into areas of, of technical problems, because in the, in the absence of an institution like this, there are many different ways in which the, the policy-making process can become co-opted. It can be hostage to special interests. It can be hostage to politicians' own preferences and priorities, as we saw a lot during the COVID case. So they can claim to be following the science um, and doing whatever they want to do, or they can be at the, the mercy of experts who have their agenda. So there are many different ways in which the process can become co-opted and there might not be accountability for it. So the idea is to bring the necessary democratic accountability into areas in which expertise is involved. So it sounds then maybe uh, a bit like it's a kind of science communication tool, primarily. You want to enable accountability of decision makers. You want people to be able to see what input is being given to politicians before they make their decisions so that people can better judge those decisions, which is important for sure. But then my question is, why is a science court better than 
just making sure that science and science advice are well communicated to the public. I, I, I see why the way I answered your um, last question made you say that. Okay. Um, it's, it's because I gave you a partial answer, I guess, emphasizing the, the accountability part. Um, but the participation part is, is equally key. Um, and that is the, the idea that citizens and their values should be represented in the decisions that are made on the basis of science. And the point of the court is not just to communicate, but to expose the assumptions and the values involved in science itself. So in the book, I build my argument on the literature on the role of values in science, which has long argued, uh, I'm sure your um, audience will be familiar with this, has long argued that um, values are involved in science at various different stages. And I argue that this has serious democratic implications. So when science arrives at the policy stage, a lot of value judgments have already been made. And to make the use of science compatible with the idea of democratic um, determination, democratic decision-making, uh, we have to make sure that we examine what those values are, what their implications are. And the aim of the court is to use the, the adversarial structure um, to make sure to expose the assumptions possible biases, omissions, and uncertainty behind these scientific claims so as to facilitate making more democratic judgments on its basis. So if these, these values are not examined, then the, the decisions we make will be imperceptibly guided by value decisions made at earlier stages of the science, which don't even become politicized. So if one purpose of the, the court is to facilitate accountability, transparency, good communication, access, the other is to make sure that the values involved are examined, contested, and made to align um, with the, the values and interests of a representative group, representative group of the public. R right. Interesting. So the court then is doing some of the work, taking some of the responsibility that's currently held by policymakers. It's not doing work of scientists. They're still doing the science that's presented in the court, just as they do it now. But it's taking some of the role of policymakers in deciding what to do with the science. That's exactly right. Yeah, I, I'm happy to emphasize, I'm happy you emphasize this because that can get lost. I think when, when we hear the term science score, it sounds like what's being settled is something about the science. In reality, what's being done is, is, a, is a democratic decision-making process. So it's, it's much more um, replacing the policymaker's role than it is replacing the scientist's role. Where does the idea come from? Is there any precedent? Yeah, so I stumbled upon this when looking at some debates on science policy from the 60s and 70s when the scientists um, had, I would say, uh, a more prominent role in the policymaking process. I mean, now they're, they're prominent again because of the pandemic, but uh, a physicist called Arthur Kantrowitz was um, bothered by some of the issues I, I described about the, the disagreement between scientists and the, um, the difficulty of dealing with that in a political setting. So he proposed the idea of a science court. He didn't name it that. A journalist gave it that name in an article, and, and that term just stuck because it's kind of short and pithy. But his idea was actually quite different. So I, I certainly got the idea from, from that debate, and, and it was very popular at the time. It was endorsed by scientific organizations, by the White House, and it, it generated a lot of attention. But it was, it was quite different in its institutional structure. So it was more technocratic, I would say. The idea there was clearly to, to settle the science in a way that would make it easier to make policy after that. So the, the judges would be scientists 
they would not be in the area of under contestation, but they would listen to the, the, the two sides and then make a ruling only on the science. So it ran on a clear fact value separation, which I think is, is unrealistic and flawed, but it was, it was meant to, to settle the science. So I actually changed quite a bit of the original proposal um, in adapting it um, for, for our purposes today. So in the original proposal, the policymaker would be in the audience, as it were. They'd watch the argument happen, then they'd listen to the final verdict from the judges and they'd say, ah, okay, now we know what science is telling us, now we can use it to make our decisions. Exactly right, yeah. Uh-huh. And in the new version, in your version, what's different? What kind of powers should this court have? So is it genuinely meant to be binding? When your jury says, okay, we conclude that a and B policy actions are the right call. Is that then binding on policymakers? No, it's not meant to be binding. So um, there is a big literature on participatory experiments, on citizen participation in policy going back to the, the late 80s, I think. So most of these are deliberative institutions, whereas mine is an adversarial one, but, but the, the same genre. And, and the dis there's a longstanding question on whether these institutions and the decisions they make should be um, authoritative. And there's a, there's a group of scholars who argue that even if it's, if it's representative, if the method of selection makes the group of citizens involved representative in a descriptive sense, you can't really leave behind the millions of citizens who haven't participated and make a, a, a binding decision. And I'm sympathetic to that view. Uh, I don't like, um, you know, the, the, the short slogan is, you know, democracy can't leave the people behind. And, and I agree with that. So the, the decision that comes out of the court would not be binding, but I would be open to thinking of, um, so I suggest, for example, if, if policymakers reject it, that it could go back to a court or um, there could be processes that, that try to tie the hands of, of policymakers a little bit um, to give it more, more force. But at the end of the day, it's, a, it's an advisory institution, um, much like any kind of um, scientific advisory body. It advises policymakers. It's a voice in the policymaking process. I really hope it's an authoritative voice, that it has um, weight, it, it's influential, and especially it having weight with the public would be important. Um, and I'm always thinking about ways to ensure that, um, but I wouldn't give it binding policymaking powers. Okay. Um, this is a, a broader question, I suppose, about the principles of democracy rather than science, but it's relevant here. So one kind of clear... A fairly hardline view would be to say, look, we already have democratic accountability. We have elections. So we elect politicians to decide all kinds of things across the board based on all kinds of inputs, not just scientific inputs, but everything, yeah, all considerations. And we know they're going to use their own values and judgments. And that's kind of the point. That's why we choose them. And we judge them by the results at election time. So in a way, there isn't an accountability gap. The democracy box is, is ticked, right? Now, you already suggested a few reasons why that might not be enough, why you might want to add other kinds of participation and accountability along the way, which is fine. I mean, that's a debate. But my question is, surely it's a debate about democratic systems in general. What's special about science, science advice, that makes it appropriate to create a special science court outside of whatever general democratic accountability systems you have in your constitution? What makes science special, I think, in this context is the complexity, uh, the difficulty of holding policymakers accountable through the regular means 
in an issue area that requires more attention at the very least, but also knowledge, competence, time, um, some level of statistical familiarity to understand what's going on. So I think in other issue areas, we can be content just judging the results. We can you know, listen to the debates or read the news and, and have a sense of, of what has happened and why. But I think in, on issues involving expertise, scientific expertise specifically, it's difficult to have that level of, of, of understanding to, to know whether this policy followed from, from some kind of scientific evidence or did not, whether it tracked someone's interests or did not. The answers depend on scientific advice. And this, if the scientific advice is, you know, if, if it's, if it's delivered in secret, that's of course worse, but even when it is delivered openly, it can be very difficult to know whether, you know, there were, there was a disagreement. So one side won out. So who, what happened? What, which side was right? Whose interests were considered in the process? It's very difficult to, to scrutinize science without having at least some kind of setting in which scientists are directly communicating with with citizens, explaining themselves, defending themselves. And I think the dialectic of one scientist criticizing another in front of a public audience is helpful for understanding what, what might be the weaknesses. I think it's much more difficult when you have a scientific community that speaks with a single voice, that has um, given one conclusive piece of advice, um, and not having access to what, what other views were considered in the process. Um, what were the objections? What were the weaknesses? So this is not, it's not typical to communicate that aspect to the public. And there are scholars who actually defend that as a good way to advise um, policymakers, that it's better if scientists resolve those disputes internally, um, and that part isn't made um, publicly available. I see some of their reasons, but at the end of the day, I disagree with that. And I think seeing the disagreement, seeing its scope, its nature is, is absolutely crucial. And um, it's difficult to just see it from parliamentary debates or um, the news. And this court is meant to make that process um, interactive. The jurors can ask questions to the scientists and um, seeing that in action, um, I think, is, is crucial. Okay. I hadn't visualized the jurors asking questions. I was still imagining the law court, you know, where the jury sits there passively while the arguments are performed in front of them. Well, they're different. Um, so actually, there is a, a, a push toward allowing jurors to ask questions in jury trials. So I've looked at, at some projects that really think that would make a difference, um, whether to, to press the witnesses or to clarify. I mean, there are different types of questions they can ask as well. Um, and of course, in the jury case, there are greater worries about revealing the juror to, to have size or maybe um, skewing the process. There are concerns about impartiality. In the policy court, those concerns don't exist. So I don't, um, I don't see why jurors wouldn't ask questions. And I think questions are good. I think that they really bring in the, the juror into the action. They facilitate not just understanding, but also um, raising their, their concerns. They give them a voice. Um, so perhaps also in the legal jury case, but definitely in this case, I think um, the ability to ask questions is, um, is an important right. one. Fine. I'm really interested in this idea of relying on the jury then. So in the model we have now for science advice, where scientific experts advise politicians, 
um, about these very intricate, very value-laden, sometimes controversial, sometimes uncertain issues, blah, blah, blah. You have one group of experts, so scientists, putting their heads together with another group of experts, policymakers, people who, in a sense, are experts in their own domain of politics or, you know, policymaking in whatever way. So you have expert-to-expert conversations. And, and yeah, it can be opaque. But if one of the big problems you have is that the values and complexities of science are not being adequately taken into account when we make policy, I'm not really convinced that adding in a small, randomly chosen, impaneled group of lay people to pass judgment will, will really improve things very much. And I'm particularly curious here because, so I grew up in the UK where we have jury trials, you know, in law courts as you do in the US. But now I live in Belgium where for most intents and purposes, we don't use juries. And so I'm very much aware that it's not only not universal, but actually regarded as a kind of quirk of the Anglo-Saxon judicial system. And there's an amount of research and scholarship, as I'm sure you know, and some ethical debate about whether it's really a good system, because juries are representative, which is good, presumably, but they're also unpredictable and easily swayed and misled and vulnerable to all kinds of sneaky tactics which are unfamiliar to them, but which judges, professionals presumably, will be able to see right through. So it's interesting that you want to take something that in one domain has these various ostensible flaws, but where at least it's only trying to come to a simple answer about a fact, like is this person guilty or not guilty as charged, and import it then into a domain which is in some ways more complicated and way more subject to public controversies and ethical clashes and so on. Sorry, long question, but basically what do you think about that? So I think to some extent, and the defense of uh, jury trials is, is a fundamentally democratic argument that bringing in ordinary citizens in a democratic system to be part of the, the legal system of the, the rules um, that are coercive, binding on everyone, and makes the process more democratic. It allows citizens to bring their, their values, sometimes their local knowledge of circumstances, in other cases, their values about the, the enforcement and the content of laws to the process and, and, and their application, and that there's a democratic justification for doing so. I come from a country that doesn't have jury trials either, but when I um, read about it when I saw the operation. I, I was convinced by the arguments that this is actually key for the, the healthy functioning of a democratic system. And I think that democratic argument is very valuable. So the, the argument for a jury trial and for a, um, a science court is not primarily on the grounds that this would be a more competent way to make a decision, but that it would be a more democratic way. So I want to make that very clear. So that's, that's the primary justification. Okay. Well, then I suppose it depends what you value in your legal system. I mean, just talking about the law rather than science for now. Yeah. So I, I do hear what you're saying about being judged by a jury of my peers and, you know, that being democratically legitimate and all that. Exactly. And I get the argument. But then my question was more about reliability and quality than legitimacy. And I think it's possible to be a Democrat and to recognize and value citizen involvement in the processes that create rules that are binding on those citizens. But if it turns out the price you pay for that is getting less accurate judgments, you know, more innocent people go to jail, more guilty people go free, and so on. I mean, firstly, that would be bad in its own right, obviously, but it might also 
undermine public confidence in the system if the system is delivering faulty results. I don't really know how the facts are. I just know there's some debate. But if there is that trade-off in judicial processes, then there might also be in science advice processes. And I think someone could reasonably say, I'm a Democrat, but if the price of more citizen involvement is less accuracy, for want of a better term, then I don't want to make that change. Let's prioritise the experts who are good at doing this over the citizens who are not. Yeah, yeah, so that very good. Um, that presumes a view in which we know what's an accurate judgment and then the, the aim of the, the process is to get at it. And in the, the legal case, that's true, but the problem is that we never have the evidence, the data to know whether juries or judges get at more accurate judgments because we don't know the truth about the, the innocence or guilt. It's very difficult. So I, I looked at, at studies of uh, comparing juries and judges and really all they can do is to, to say to what extent their decisions agree or they have judges observe trials and, and evaluate whether they would have given the same verdict. So well, there's a, well a, I mean, also that they stand to scrutiny. They don't get overturned on appeal. There aren't a lot of retrials and miscarriages of justice and that kind of thing. I mean, it's not always a mystery, right? We can tell sometimes when we got it wrong. Sometimes, sometimes. But, but we don't have systematic knowledge of on that question. We just have assumptions based on the fact that we know that judges happen to be experts and juries not, that maybe actually they would give more accurate verdicts, but actually we don't have systematic evidence to, sh to support that view. Um, and judges have their own biases, um, they give longer sentences, and um, in, in certain cases it's the, the question of the application of the law to facts is just uncertain and there's disagreement about that and the truth is just not accessible. Um, and I think that that framing is important and that's really how I see the, the science court situation and maybe it's also um, even more pronounced in the science court case or in, in policy making cases that the truth is really not accessible, that there are these two different, I'm not saying scientific truth, this is not about scientific truth, but about the truth about what would be a good kind of policy to make at this point in time with the available knowledge we have. Even if it is a truth apt in some way, that depends very closely on the kinds of trade-offs that people are willing to make under uncertainty. So I, experts might have some advantage in, in guessing at what is likely to be the more accurate scientific view, but given the stakes, given um, where the, the trade-offs about you know, lives lost versus economic factors or whatever it is we're talking about, where that lies, I think um, this is not a question of getting to some kind of expert truth or even approximating it, but just you know, making decisions, making trade-offs um, under uncertainty with the, the best knowledge we have. Um, and this, this is the framing of a political decision. And I think the accuracy frame um, is not appropriate to the science court. So, for example, um, if, we're, if the science court is, is posed the question of whether there should be general lockdowns or whether there should be more targeted measures, I don't see this as a question of the accuracy of the policy and whether scientists are more able to get the accurate answer about the, the appropriateness of lockdowns. I see this as a political question. There are many interests at stake um, and there are different scientific views which seem fairly uncertain and there's disagreement over them, but we also have some evidence. Um, so this is how I view the issue. And I, and I would certainly accept the claim that perhaps in cases where the science is very certain, um, this, is, this is out of place, that this is best suited to, to areas of, of real uncertainty and disagreement. Yeah, sure. But there are plenty of those areas and they're, they're big, important issues. It's not like you're setting your field too narrowly. 
No, I don't think so. I think most issues, at least they start out as being uncertain. Yeah, I agree. So am I right to understand that one of the side effects of this system would be to improve public trust in science? Yes, I certainly hope so. Uh, I think the mechanism through which it would increase trust in science is that it would make science more accessible. It would also ensure that the science has been examined, that it has made itself open to criticism. Opening yourself criticism in front of an audience, sometimes even when the move is, is, is more performative than, than actual, can be a, a great trust builder to say that I am, I'm here, I'm willing to, to admit my weakness, or even if you're, you're not the one admitting, I'm, I'm willing to be criticized. Um, I think that's, that's good for building trust. I think that builds trust better than insisting that, that you have the, the one true answer and then being proved wrong. So that's the, the most damaging is to um, have scientific advice um, that's delivered in great certainty and is, is uh, not opened up for criticism or the criticism is resisted and then there's a reversal. And we've seen so many reversals during the pandemic that I've, I've become even more persuaded that, that being open for criticism is crucial for trust in science. I know this is maybe, I don't uh, be a, maybe a counterintuitive view that, um, you know, uh, a display of authority, confidence and consensus is seen to be inspiring more trust, but, but that, that is a, a risky move because trust takes a long time to build. But when there's one, one failure, one uh, disaster, then, then it's gone and it's very hard to, to get it back. So in these ways, I think the, and the, the idea that there are ordinary citizens in the jury um, representing the public also, I think, would, would increase trust because these citizens would act as a, a proxy for other citizens. So the institution is meant to serve as a, a trusted proxy for those who don't have the time or who can't be there, um, who are not selected and whatnot. And you're comfortable with the adversarial structure in that respect, you know, essentially watching scientists kind of battle each other and trying to defeat each other's arguments and so on. Because I can imagine that that system might be good for getting to the truth. But for increasing trust in the, in the representatives and what they represent, I'm not so sure. I, I know that many will think the adversarial structure will reduce trust in science. But I guess I'll, I'll just say that we know um, from some communication research, some behavioral research, that actually communicating um, uncertainty and limiting and revealing weaknesses does not necessarily reduce trust. It, it depends a bit on the, the context in which it's done, how it's done, and so on. I think this would build trust rather than take it away. Hmm. Yeah, okay. And I guess also another advantage you might get is that it raises understanding of how science operates anyway, outside the courtroom. Because, you know, disputation and challenge is all part of science. As we've seen recently with, with COVID science advice, people are coming to realize there isn't just one simple truth. There's progress over time through debate and so on. That's all well and good. The counter argument to that, though, I, that I sympathize with somewhat as a communicator is that sometimes your main interest is not to promote the public understanding of science, but to get people to just do something urgently. Sometimes you want to say, look, listen, I'm going to say this very clearly now. You need to do this and this and this or we're all going to hell. You know, whether that's stay indoors or wear masks or get vaccinated or whatever. What I don't want you to hear is a long series of uncertainties and different views and models that might predict A, B, and C with different levels of probability, right? That stuff is all there, of course. I just kind of want to pretend it's not and keep a lid on it because my ambition right now 
is to give you the single clear message to motivate behavior because it's an emergency. And I wonder whether in those situations, the science court might be rather too unwieldy. What do you think? Yeah, I see the force of the argument for sure. Um, but again, that framing suggests that we know exactly what needs to be done in an emergency, what will save lives, and that the, the challenge is just to make sure people get that message and obey it. And, and you said, you know, wear your mask, this and that. But if you, have the, if you have the wrong idea, so for example, in the US, in February 2020, um, Anthony Fauci, Deborah Birx, Surgeon General Jerome Adams, they were all unanimous saying, do not wear a mask. And this was the emergency situation. They did not explain why they thought that. There was no discussion of the evidence. Um, they were just in the United States at this time. There is no threat. Do not wear a mask. And I think this was very damaging, both because it was wrong that they, people should have tried to wear whatever they could lay their hands on, you know, put something to cover their mask, even at that time. At that time, especially, um, when other other policies were not in place, but also because it turned out to be very difficult to reverse that message come um, April um, to explain to people, oh, then suddenly everyone's talking about how uncertain science is and now we have more evidence. But, but that because it wasn't communicated in that way in the beginning, then it made it very difficult for the correct advice, once we knew it was the correct advice, to stick. So I think to, to presume that kind of certainty um, under emergency itself carries risks. So I, I do recognize perhaps there are some emergencies where you, you know, there, there isn't enough time to run a court. So, so I understand these kinds of pragmatic concerns, but I do want to push back against the, the idea that emergency means the court structure isn't appropriate, because especially under emergency, the science is usually highly uncertain. It usually hasn't gone through peer review. There isn't a buildup of evidence. A long-standing um, scientific debate hasn't happened. I, I, I want to resist the idea that emergency justifies going with the single message. If there is genuine uncertainty, if the evidence isn't, isn't very strong, I would still want to push for mechanisms that emphasize the, um, the disagreement in some way. Mm, fair enough. I see what you mean. Uh, we don't need to go around this loop many more times, but I, I wonder a bit still. Taking the early days of the COVID pandemic as the example here, you're absolutely right that the wrong advice was given at the start you know, confidently with authority. And that was a huge problem and it probably cost lives. And besides that, it also cost a huge amount of hassle trying to reverse course and correct it later on. And people are still now confused about it in some cases, actually. So I absolutely buy that. Obviously, the ideal situation is just to know the right answer. But when we don't know the right answer, when there's all this uncertainty and controversy and, and mess... It's obviously bad to deliver the wrong answer with a simple message, but I wonder whether it would really help any more to instead expose all that controversy and diversity and so on, because at the end of the day, you end up without a simple message. Okay. And that in a way guarantees that whatever you say isn't going to be effective in motivating the public. Whereas at least by taking your best shot, pulling together whatever semblance of a consensus you can lay your hands on and kind of delivering it with a straight face, at least that way you have a decent chance of getting it right. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right about that. But to be clear, my argument is not for saying we don't know. Here are some arguments. Um, the science court always delivers a decision. It's just a decision arrived at at the result of a particular kind of process that exposes some of the, um, the uncertainties and then citizens deliberate in light of what they think the trade-off is. So I think at that point, um, I personally would find it an easy trade-off to say, well, there's this new virus, and if I, you know, if I put on a mask, maybe it will protect me, and, and there's absolutely no cost to me. I, I think of it as a very low-cost measure. 
So I would absolutely do it. But when, um, so this kind of calculation is then open either to citizens individually to make, or in the science court case, a bunch of citizens deliberate and make it for everyone else and say, you know, this is what we recommend. So you, you have a decision and you also have the, the steps leading to that decision, which, which are open for evaluation. But I absolutely agree with you that in many cases in politics, you want a decision, you need a decision, you can't just kick the can down um, and wait. And waiting is not advisable or not possible in some cases. So I, I certainly support decisions that are arrived at the end of a, of a process that, that treats the, the pros and cons, the uncertainties, the, um, the assumptions adequately. Very good. And then this is maybe a bit of a Mickey Mouse challenge, but oh yeah, how many on the jury, by the way? I'm assuming 12, but that's just like by analogy. How many do you want? I think it would vary with the scale of the issue. It can be 12 in a, in a local case. It can be 20. It can be, I don't know if it can be 30 and still get a good deliberation among jurors, but I think it would, it would be in that range. Okay. And they vote presumably in the end, do they? Yes. Right. So, so you're selecting a small, small in any case, by comparison to the size of the population, uh, panel of people. So what happens then in the situations where by chance they are unrepresentative or, you know, they just don't get it and then deliver a really unhelpful verdict? Do we just rely on the politicians to overrule that? Yes, I think um, this would be fed into the policy process. It would be no different than, than many other circumstances in which um, a well-constructed process results in a bad decision, a wrong decision, a decision with which the majority of citizens do not agree. So yes, exactly. That would be a case where the, the court delivered um, a decision that was flawed and there'd be debate about it. So part of the, um, the purpose of the court is to generate more public discussion, to um, in, in some cases to generate disagreement among the citizenry and policymakers would have the, the final say. Okay. Let's finish, uh, if we may, with a bit more of a general reflection. You frame the science court uh, as a way of giving democratic legitimacy to the process of taking scientific uncertainty and making policy out of it. And I like I like that framing very much, by the way. Um, so the science court is one way to do that, but there are also other more traditional ways, right? So politicians, for instance, have oversight of science funding, um, and they can also pick and choose who advises them according to their judgment. And so I wonder if you'd like to comment on how the science court compares to or fits together with these other more traditional methods of democratic oversight. I think the issue is certainly broader than, than just the science court. And to be very clear, in the book, I present the science court as one possible institution um, in, a, in a landscape of institutions that together would um, ensure that there's democratic scrutiny um, and influence uh, over science. So I, the funding issue is, is really important to me. I think about ways in which the funding of science could be rethought, um, could be made more democratic in some ways, but not directly through a, a court-like structure or direct participation in some cases. Um, so I have some thoughts about that. Um, I think starting the, the democratic involvement at earlier stages of science is absolutely crucial um, for future uses of science to facilitate the interaction um, at later stages. What you said about um, policymakers selecting their scientific advisors, um, that I think is, is, is also critical. So lately I've been interested um, in the, um, the role of 
of organized dissent from within the scientific community and different modes in which that can be delivered. So that doesn't necessarily require citizens being involved in the process, um, but scientists themselves offering their disagreement with the official advisory body and how they can do that and, um, and some of the, the problems that arise in this process and how they can be overcome. So you know, scientists sometimes individually dissent and, and they go public with that. Sometimes they band together, they, they sign um, petitions or documents, they write letters. Um, in other cases, they set up rival bodies. So the, the independent Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies in the UK has become a running example for me um, because I think that's, that's doing a very valuable role of bringing disagreements and emphasizing some of the weaknesses of the official advisory group for emergencies. They're oriented towards the public. They stream their meetings on YouTube. They publish their minutes. Um, and they also help the opposition parties. Um, they give um, valuable advice. They put it in the public realm. Um, but they're also scientists, so they're not muddying the grounds. Like We know that it's not just one fallible individual scientist's word against others, so they deliberate within themselves. So I love that structure. That's another um, form of emphasizing uncertainty and disagreement within science toward a public audience that I think is really promising, very valuable. Um, and of course, parliamentary debates, having um, scientists testify, that kind of thing already exists. So I'm, I'm certainly in favor of that. I've also suggested official scientific advisory bodies could write dissenting um, opinions like the U.S. Supreme Court. That this could be a practice that's adopted. So they're, they're always um, dissenting views in a committee. And if they, they noted down their, their views and, and put it alongside the, the official view, that could help in certain cases. That's another. So there are many different things that could be tried towards the same aim of, of facilitating the communication of uncertainty and the, um, the examination of assumptions and values in science um, within the public sphere. Thanks. I do want to ask you one last question and just a bit of a cheeky one. If you're one day accused of a crime and you come to court and you can choose jury or judge or let's say panel of judges, and I'm assuming you're innocent here, of course, and you want to be acquitted. Can you really put your hand on your heart and say you would choose the jury? Absolutely. Really? Okay. <laughs> I feel exactly the opposite. Would you not? But I... Oh, no, 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 no. If I'm guilty, I'll take the jury and I'll, I'll, I'll hope they can be tricked into letting me go. But if I'm innocent, hell no, give me a judge. It's the smartest one you can find. Interesting. I, I, I don't know. I, I, this, is, this is just my intuition. but Yeah, and also just mine. I mean, I'm sure it's all part of my naive trust in authority, probably. <laughs> anyway, we had better draw this to a close. But uh, thank you so much for a really fun and persuasive uh, discussion of this interesting idea. I will take this chance to recommend your book one more time to the audience. I mean, I've only read one chapter so far, but it's a really interesting commentary. And thanks again, Dr. Zainet Pamuk. Thank you very much for this conversation. And I have to say, I loved your podcast generally. I mean, these are the, the issues that I care about a lot. And to find a whole list of people talking for hours about this which is <laughs> so exciting for me <laughs> well since you arrived a couple of years late this means you can binge whenever you like absolutely yeah yeah <laughs> great all right thank you very much indeed the science for policy podcast is produced by sapea we're a consortium of europe's academy networks representing more than 100 academies young academies and learning societies from more than 40 countries across Europe.
We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism and as such we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions on this podcast are those of the guests, and sometimes mine, but they're not the views of Sapea and certainly not of the European Commission. And finally, this lovely cello music is written by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko. And I'm sorry for talking over it.